0: Welcome to your weekly dose of BSD Now, catching up to the BSD. We have a lot of cool stuff to report to you about Dragonfly BSD, OpenBSD, a BSD phone, which might be interesting to some of you, NetBSD got a new release, and there's also new stuff from TrueOS. So stay tuned for your weekly dose of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 187, recorded on March 29th, 2017. Hi, I'm your co-host, Benedikt Euschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we'll have a nice show prepared for you with a lot of new stuff happening in the BSD world, so we should get right into it. Yes. So So,
1: our uh, first story here is the release of NetBSD
0: Mm 7.1. It's a big one, apparently. There's a lot of stuff in the release notes. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's one of the biggest things that they listed there um we probably should start at the beginning
1: uh so the this update represents a selected subset of fixes deemed important for security or stability reasons as well as new features and enhancements uh first thing Mm, is their compat linux got quite a bit of an update uh it now fully supports the schedule set affinity and get affinity uh system calls so that you can uh, pin processes to CPUs even uh, under the Linux API Uh, and they also fixed the, uh, or that brought in the fix for the Intel Math Kernel Library which uh, depended on being able to do
0: that Ah, okay and there's dtrace stuff. Um, so apparently they avoid redefined symbol errors when loading the module in the first place. Ooh. And the module auto-load, autoload was also fixed. Yeah, I, I so know on, for NetBSD, mm-hmm,
1: uh, good on FreeBSD, the D-Trace is broken out into like six or more kernel modules now. But you just load dtrace all and it depends all the other ones and, and sucks them in. So I imagine they have something mm-hmm. similar. And uh, if autoloading wasn't working, then you'd run into all kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, NetBSD still also has the IP filter firewall uh, and so they've got a bunch of fixes to that including uh, matching ICMP queries uh, that have gone through NAT uh, or sorry that have been added through IPF uh, fix the lookup of the original destination address when using a redirect rule which is required to build transparent proxies like SQUID uh, and some improvements to IPsec including NAT-T support uh, for NetBSD being a host Behind NAT, but using IPsec.
0: Ah, okay. And a bunch of new drivers apparently, or driver updates. Mm-hmm. So they added a VIO SCSI, I guess it's called, driver for the Google com- Google Compute Engine disk, mm-hmm. and an ICH SMB support with um, the Braswell CPU and Intel One Hundred series, which is mm-hmm. good. More more architecture support, more CPU support, which is NetBSD's thing, and VM. Uh, was also updated. Sorry, that's just WMS. Yeah, <laughs> wms Yeah, in Germans. German, it's yeah. Uh, uh, I I translate on the fly. But yeah, uh, so. <laughs> that looks that looks
1: to be the uh, two point five gigabit per second NICs that are included on the, some of the um, Avaton type CPUs. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, looking forward to seeing what happens with the two point five and five gigabit NIC hardware, uh, especially if it's a lot cheaper than some of the ten gigabit stuff that's available. It'll really depend on availability of switches, I think, whether or not that'll end up taking off.
0: Uh, but I guess we're going to see a couple of uh, benchmark results in the future from that one or other mm-hmm. similar cards. Uh, Wake on LAN support was added, and a lot of bugs were fixed, mm-hmm. which is always good. Uh, the new release also contains security fixes uh, for memory leaks in the Connect system call and several vulnerabilities in ARP.
1: And it looks like they also fixed a uh, weak privilege separation bug in Xen, uh for AMD 64.
0: Oh, hmm. okay. No,
1: And so they have a list that's... of other ones, including updates to bind, expat, the DHCP client, uh, libice, open SSL, TCP dump, uh, Xorg, et cetera. And you know, the uh, change list goes on to detail here uh,
0: as well. Hmm. Good a lot of stuff happening in a release Mm -hmm. it's always good to see and um, oh there's ARM related stuff so for the ARM folks and the ARM uh, board fans they have support for the Raspberry Pi Zero Uh, I have two of them but I haven't got much uh, work done on it but I will over the summer and Odroid C1 Ethernet now works which is good we have uh, (laughs) working yeah (laughs) so yeah check out that release and um I guess there will be a lot of new things happening on the NetBSD front here with the new release. And I guess we'll see a couple of more things over the coming weeks coming from that when people report in new things that they're doing with it.
1: Yep. Uh, so the next story is actually a summary of preliminary LLDB support uh, being added for NetBSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have a summary of what's been done in NetBSD. They verified the full matrix combinations of the wait and ptrace uh, calls. Um, GNU lib standard plus plus. The standard call once bug uh, had to be investigated in some of the test cases there. They've improved the documentation and minor other system parts. Uh, they increased the documentation of ptrace and explained how the debugger actually starts up and, and works there. Um, they added uh, some newer SIG info code to, for SIG trap and uh, added a new ptrace interface. Uh, mm-hmm. So then... Breaking down what they actually did in LLDB, uh, they now have a native process uh, NetBSD plugin, so that the LLVM debugger can attach to uh, BSD uh, or to NetBSD stuff uh, processes mm-hmm. that are running. Um,
0: and I, uh, I guess I guess the long term goal for that one is to replace the the old uh, GNU DB yep. or similar things like in uh, FreeBSD, where they have a a BSD license or a non-GPL licensed uh, debugger mm-hmm. in the system,
1: in the base system. Yes, a, a liberally licensed debugger in
0: the base system. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the better word for it.
1: <laughs> but yeah, uh, so they also added a monitor callback function so that you can monitor a process. Uh, and then a bunch of other LLDB code got fixed that was not specific to the native process NetBSD plugin. Uh, and they automated running the LLDB test results, which is good.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so you can see that your uh, the LLDB is running as it should and produces the the wrong uh, the, the proper output.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there are plans for the next milestone as well. Um, so they fix a conflict with system-wide uh, Pi 6, which is a Python module, I guess. And they added support for V read operations, uh, switch resolution of PID to path to executable from the proc uh, system, CTL, um, right, so yeah. what, what they
1: switched to using sysctl to look up uh, what's the path of this executable by starting with the PID. So for Linux and, uh, and so on, that used to be done with proc, uh, but with NetBSD, there's a sysctl you can use to find out mm. for this PID what is the
0: path of the, uh, the executable. The executable, yeah. or truly the executable, yeah. yeah. Okay, then they also recognize or want to recognize real time signals. And upstream the NetBSD process plugin code. Yeah, so
1: everything that they change that isn't in the NetBSD process plugin, they've upstreamed so that uh, that's available to everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. So contribute some code back to the upstream, which is always a nice thing because other people can then uh, make use of that as well. Um, they switched the standard call underscore once to LLVM call underscore once. So it's more of a general. LLVM-specific namespace thing here. And they added new Ptrace interfaces to lock and unlock threads from execution. Also good. Mm-hmm. And not very NetBSD-specific, so also something that might be upstream. Mm-hmm. And last thing, switch the current uh, PT watchpoint interface to PT get db Rex and PT set db rex.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm guessing for the registers.
0: Yeah, uh, mm-hmm.
1: so... Lots of interesting stuff in order to get LLDB going on NetBSD as well. I know it's uh, quite far along on FreeBSD as well. Uh, so with all that, it uh, it looks like yeah. uh, Clang, LLVM and related tools like LLD and LLDB uh, seem to be making inroads on NetBSD and OpenBSD as well, not just FreeBSD now.
0: Mm, Which is good, yeah, uh, because then they have a lot of, uh, you know, cross uh, project pollination in the LLDB area. Uh, And 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 in
1: particular, just more people working on BSDs in general and making sure that projects like LLVM understand that BSD is important. Not that they didn't, Mm -hmm. uh, but having lots of different BSDs working on it means more attention and that's better for everybody. But yeah, yeah, uh, it's definitely worth checking out the blog post. It's uh, quite a long blog post explaining all the little bits. So if you're interested in debugging and so on, uh, definitely check it out. They even have a graph of uh, the number of tests that are passing as they increase the oh, number nice. uh, by 45% uh, with their changes. So there's oh, a lot pressure. more tests
0: that are passing now.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: It's one thing to write tests, but the other thing is to let them pass. Yes.
1: Uh, well, in this case, yes, is to make changes to LLDB so that the tests actually pass.
0: Mm-hmm. Good.
1: Uh, the, this week's episode uh, is brought to you by our first sponsor DigitalOcean uh, so you know, if you need to run something and you should be running it on FreeBSD uh, then DigitalOcean is a great way to do that because you can rent a server for as little as $5 a month uh, and with that mm-hmm. you get 512 megs of memory uh, one processor uh, 20 gigs of SSD back storage and one terabyte of transfer you can double all of those mm-hmm. uh, for just ten dollars a month, um, and with if you use the coupon code uh, freebsd now when you sign up, that'll let them know that you heard about uh, DigitalOcean on our show, and it'll also add a ten dollars credit to your account so that you don't have to pay for the second and third month of your five dollar droplet.
0: And then yep, and these. Uh, Yeah, these are enterprise SSDs, so these are not cheap ones. They are actually used in the big enterprises, Mm -hmm. and you also can uh, get monitoring for your droplet, and you can resize your droplet in case you need more um, resources for that Mm -hmm. one. So there's a lot of stuff you can do on your DigitalOcean droplet. Backups and snapshots are also possible. So Uh, uh,
1: When you go to create the droplet, it only takes about 55 seconds between when you hit create and when you can actually log into the droplet server and start doing stuff uh and when you go to create it you can choose if you want ufs or zfs plus they have Mm. uh, a separate block storage thing so if you look at these you can see you don't get all that much space 20 or 30 or 40 gigs of ssd that's really just for the operating system and so on if you want to do bulk storage uh then what you can do is get their block storage product which allows you to buy space uh per gigabyte um, and get a volume attached to your vm and then you could run zfs on that uh but when you create the droplet you can decide whether the os disk is zfs or ufs you know if you've got a very small amount of memory because you're getting one of the cheaper droplets ufs is probably a good bet but it doesn't mean you can't also attach a zfs after the fact or because of the resizing you can always size up uh and switch to more memory in the future and then back down if you want
0: And another thing yeah the other thing is that you can also programmatically control your droplets. They have uh, an open API, an mm-hmm. API where you can you send HTTP requests to and that is a way to manage your uh, droplet without actually having a, a client available. You just and write a program that accesses that API and well, the best part changes You don't uh, have to this. write
1: a program for it. There are command line utilities already in the FreeBSD port tree. So you can just oh, yeah. type a couple of commands and create your droplets, you know. We use that because You know, we're like, we need 36 droplets. All of them identical, but Mm, spread across a bunch of the data centers and we need them, like, as fast as possible. So it's like a for loop calling (laughs) the DigitalOcean Droplet API tool saying, hey, create six droplets in each data center. Boom. Done. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, Yeah. that's nice. Anyway, check it out. DigitalOcean.com and don't forget to use the coupon code FreeBSD now. If you've signed up already but have never used a coupon code, it'll still work. But you can only ever use one coupon code. You can't just keep using a string of coupon codes. So as long as you've not used one, go into your account, enter FreeBSD now, and get $10. So our next story is really interesting. We've heard lots of talk uh, in the past, uh, various people talking about trying to make uh, a FreeBSD-based phone or to port FreeBSD to an existing phone. Um, Mm, Yeah, so... Colin uh, Stewart has come up with an interesting approach to actually maybe making this happen. Um, Mm -hmm. So what he's come up with is some standardized hardware, uh, basically one of the development board type things you can get that he knows will run FreeBSD and then bringing together other easily accessible parts to build a phone. Uh, So his basic idea for this was... uh, To have an x86 based uh, device. So it would run standard like i36 or AMD64 type code instead of being ARM specific. Some embedded board. A long lasting but user replaceable battery because what kind of hacker wants a phone where you can't change the battery or remove the battery? Um, A (laughs) a WLAN modem with LTE access so you can do the phone stuff. Uh, A four or five inch LCD touchscreen, preferably with at least 720p resolution. Uh, the ability to upgrade your storage, because nobody wants a limited amount of storage. Uh,
0: yeah, and throw your phone yeah. away when you're out of disk space or whatever, storage yeah. space. So basically
1: what yeah. he's done Upgradable. is assembled a parts list that would allow anyone to, from regular hardware channels, be able to get the parts to build this. Uh, so currently it's using mm-hmm. the Udo Ultra platform, which is an Intel Pentium N3710. So that's about a 2.5 gigahertz quad core. Has the Intel graphics, uh, 405 chip built in, which is uh, 16 execution units at 700 megahertz supports, uh, VT and VTX and all that so that you can actually run VMs on it, uh, which we'll get to in a minute mm. and has AES and I support so you can do high speed crypto.
0: Yeah, that would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. With a uh, 2.5
1: gigahertz mm. regular Intel processor, you're going to get a lot of crypto speed out of it. Um, Two 4 gig sticks of DDR3 low voltage RAM. Uh, So now, you know, a phone with 8 gigs of RAM is a lot of phone. Uh, And then Mm. a 32 gig (laughs) eMMC storage built in uh, with uh, future expansive via an M2 SSD or micro SD slot. Uh, Although I don't know how how much room there is for different M2s because one of the M2 slots is taken up by the phone modem part. Uh, but mm, what's really interesting probably, was the yeah. plan for the software. So the phone would run a really, really stripped-down FreeBSD, whose only job would be to provide Beehive. And there would be mm-hmm. two VMs running on the phone. The first VM would run PFSense and provide a firewall on your phone. And the second VM would run the graphical interface. Uh,
0: ah, okay, for the interaction yeah, with the And user. the graphical mm-hmm. interface
1: would be a slim-down installation of FreeBSD in this case, but... One could see how someone could run Android or something on it, even in that case. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but anyway, a UI tweaked uh, specifically for this form factor in a 720p ish resolution, probably with a strong reliance on Google Chromium and other uh, Google services like Google Voice.
0: Mm, so you can have voice commands yeah, uh, and tell it uh, to well, call uh, people or. Google Voice commands. in this case is their. Uh,
1: telephony thing oh
0: right the, the voice well it's it's the, the yeah, yeah, yeah providing the um
1: phone numbers and so on uh mm. is that doing yeah used? Uh, i think it's mostly Google only in the in US though
0: mm. anyway um and there's the there's the parts list uh, if you scroll down yeah, on you the can web see page there's the dev board uh a five inch 800
1: by 480 resolution uh screen uh, so that's slightly lower resolution than they were originally targeting, but it's uh, a regular thing you can buy from Adafruit, so it's uh, easily accessible. It's you don't have to you're not custom ordering somebody to build something. It's it's something that uh, any kind of Raspberry Pi type store will have in stock. Uh, then he picked a WLAN card that will do the LTE, and it lists which bands it'll do. Uh, and he offers an alternate model for people that need different bands. So I think the North American Europe versions partless will be slightly different you need a slightly different model of the card uh, but mm. then uh an m2 extender with sim card connector f- to actually uh put a sim card in it uh for your lte part uh uses intel wireless that uses the iwm driver so that already works uh he hasn't quite sorted out exactly what antennas and leads you'll need to connect all the stuff but that a 12 volt battery right. pack with charger and power supply uh and he hasn't picked a keyboard, but if you look down in the project updates, he's uh, got some discussion about the keyboards, and uh, he decided not case. to put a camera on it currently,
0: uh, partly as a privacy feature. Is there also a plan for a um, a case for it to put it on? Um, yeah, because it's going to have a lot of peripherals, I guess. Well, that uh, needs to have most the of this stuff will be
1: will go into the board. So, mm. uh, there's that, uh, but yeah. So the actual uh motherboard part uh is just starting to ship from its kickstarter campaign from last year uh so we'll we'll expect updates on this project soon when the actual motherboards arrive and he can start trying to actually put this all together uh but he also has some thoughts on keyboards where he's picked out uh two different keyboards that he likes actually based on uh, another podcast he watched uh and they were talking (laughs) about these small foldable keyboards um oh yeah Yes, it'll be interesting to watch this yeah, and that see. Yeah, that'll
0: be interesting to yeah, follow uh, along
1: over in, the months. In particular, in the next just the x86 baseness of it means that you don't have to worry about software so much. Uh, everything will just kind of work. Uh, and it means you have a, a, a more similar to your PC architecture for as far as detecting the different devices and so on. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know if this is ever going to be a mass market phone, but it's definitely seems like a better approach than the yeah.
0: bsd crowd is but, probably well, interested in that or the people who want to be independent from a specific vendor and build it on yeah on their own software or whatever but i think
1: mostly it's just yeah. that compared to a bunch of other projects i've seen where they've had the idea of making a free bsd powered phone this one has the best chance of going forward some more just because it's anybody can take this parts list and put it together themselves you are not having to yeah. well we need to do a kickstarter and be able to sell at least 100,000 of these in order to be able to uh, tool the manufacturing process and the, actually start yeah. building
0: them. Mm. Yeah, so this this looks uh, or if people just don't want to build a phone they can also use it as a like a home yeah. appliance uh, or put a bigger screen small, on it and it's a uh, server that they're running. Yeah. yeah. Same same concept. Yeah. So here we are with our news roundup for this week. So we have a story about NVMe M.2 card road tests by uh, Matt Mm
1: -hmm. Dillon. So uh, Matt Dillon's actually uh, taken out a whole different set of a whole bunch of different uh, NVMe devices and tested them. And uh, provided Mm -hmm. his thoughts and some benchmarks to allow you to try to decide which M.2 NVMe device you want to buy for your laptop or desktop.
0: Okay, and what's his, uh, what's his, uh, you know, result yeah, or so the the product? Uh, he's he's got seen?
1: quite a few different uh, products, including the Samsung nine fifty one, Samsung nine sixty mm-hmm. Evo, a Toshiba OCZ RD four hundred, an Intel six hundred P, a Western Digital Black uh, NVMe, one just called My Digital SSD, <laughs> uh, and a Plex M eight PE. Uh, he says, I primarily tested uh, random read bandwidth. Write bandwidth for these M2 devices generally is in the 600-800 megabytes per second range. Uh, although he says, see specific notes about some of the devices. Uh, and he says, uh, what I would expect from the M2 form factor due to the fewer NAND chan- uh, command channels than you get with like a PCIe one. Um, these tests are with uh, roughly 250 megabyte devices. Uh, Devices with higher capacity are or are likely to have more bandwidth because you have more cells you can work with at once, but it's usually better to test with lower capacity devices because it reveals potential bottlenecks and other red flags in the firmware and hardware uh, that might be papered over by having higher bandwidth from a larger device. He says, all the random read tests were done with a 16-gigabyte block of uncompressible data uh, that I wrote from devu-random into the partition. All of these devices support okay. 7, 8, or 16 queues. So a 16-thread uh, test uh, will generate a full queue depth of 2, and a 64-thread test will generate a queue depth of 8. He says, on the 16-queue devices, 64-threads will have a queue depth of only 4, but whatever. He says he did all the tests uh, on a PCIe... 3.0 uh, socket device. Uh, he says, note that I renumbered NVMe five and six for readability, uh, since he only has five PCIe slots on his actual uh, PCIe to M2 adapter card. Uh, but he says all tests mm-hmm. were done uh, on a Dragonfly BSD system using all of the no uh, there. MSI X vectors and parallelism offered by the device, uh, and he has the actual D message output of each of those available at the bottom as well. He says, there is no OS contention and the scheduler will optimally map vectors and threats. Uh, so he has a summary uh, at the top about many. which devices he recommends. Uh, he says, the Samsungs are excellent all-around characteristics and are recommended. Uh, he says, the Plex store is recommended. Uh, he says, it ships with a heat sink while the others don't. Uh, does uh, This particular device isn't the fastest, but it delivers high consistent good performance uh, and the temperatures are well-regulated probably partly because of the heatsink. Um, mm. <laughs>
0: they know what they're yeah. delivering. Uh,
1: he does note that the Plex store uses commodity flash rather than a uh, specific uh, manufacturer or something. So devices bought at different times or, or even two devices bought side by side might not be exactly the
0: same because it might use different mm. stuff. So you have to be careful when shopping yeah. for those.
1: The uh, My Digital SSD, he says... Uh, it, did, it ticked the speed crown, uh, but the controller clearly runs hot and quickly uh, throttles down to a lot less. So it peaked at 2.4 gigabytes per second, but once it got hot, it would throttle itself down and only run about 1.4 gigabytes per second. So that's almost only half uh. Uh, at 80 degrees Celsius and then throttles further down to 1.1 gigabytes per second. So that's down to less than half of its top speed when it hit 100 degrees celsius which is you know the temperature of boiling water um
0: Uh, it's not even summer yet Uh, when the data center is heating up then you might have a well in particular
1: it should throttle itself so it never gets that hot getting that hot is a problem and it's likely to damage the flash um he says, uh, he said, I'd conditionally recommend this device with the proviso that the controller runs too hot and it's probably not appropriate for a mobile device. Consider buying a third-party heatsink uh, to put on this device to help uh, get the heat out better. Uh,
0: yeah, just in case.
1: He says, also note that this device probably uh, uses yeah. commodity flash, uh, so your results, again, may vary. You maybe just got lucky with one that was actually that performant. Uh, with the Toshiba OCZ one... He says he doesn't recommend that one. Uh, recent tests, uh, or during test results, but the sorry had decent test results, uh, but the controller appears to allow the driver to overheat without throttling or flagging the indication at all, uh, and so mm. that really makes it uh, questionable <laughs> whether you want to do that one. Sure, because right. sure, it keeps going and providing high results, but eventually it will cook itself. <laughs>
0: Yeah, just not a very good recommendation to yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, Same with the Western Digital Black one. Um, same same, similar. No, they have, they have similar. Ah, he um, would recommend it except the SanDisk Planner TLC NAND and the endurance is only 80 terabyte for the 256 gigabyte model, which is totally unacceptable.
1: Right. So yeah. uh, if you write to the Western Digital one too much, it will wear out. Uh, and then he didn't like the Intel 600P one. Uh, for many reasons, he says, just don't buy this device. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> okay. then he's uh, still waiting for his crucial Micron M2 devices to ship so that he can test those. So we can look forward to an update in a, probably a couple of weeks uh, when he gets some more devices mm-hmm. in for uh, those to be tested.
0: Uh, so then, Yeah, and as more NVMe devices appear on the market, uh, the more crucial it is to find the ones that are and solidly manufacture and don't have these overheating problems and still deliver decent performance
1: yeah. uh he also breaks down the fabricators of the nand saying you have know, samsung has uh got 3d nand process micron has the 3d NAND process but they also have the 3d crosspoint uh they're the joint venture with intel uh although these devices aren't the 3d crosspoint yet uh then sandisk uh has is what was being branded as uh Western digital again it can also depend on their product right you have uh MLC and TLC and so on, and 3D NAND, uh, and he's got more background on each of those. Uh, he also looks at some uh, of the PCIe three uh, bandwidth. Well, you know what, where the limits are actually in uh, the PCI bus, not necessarily in your device. Uh, he's got some ideas on about heatsinks and so on, but then he gets down into the benchmarks. So on the Samsung uh, 951. Uh, he found that with a 512-byte block size, he got uh, about 81 megabytes per second or 133 Mm -hmm. if he used 64 threads instead of uh, 16. Whereas if you went to 4K blocks, it went from 81 megabytes to 635 megabytes. Or if you use more threads Mm -hmm. to keep uh, more work on the device, uh, then it went up to about a gigabyte a second. That's one of the interesting things about NVMe is... Uh, unlike a regular spinning disk, which can only do one operation at a time, uh, yep. NVMe can do many. Uh, so most of them will have 8 or 16, or with the full like PCI devices, you can get up to 64 concurrent operations happening at once. Or rather, sorry, 64 queues that you can fill with operations. And since each operation is taking you know, small, small fractions of a second, like sub-millisecond time, um, having a list of things for it to do means you can get those all done more quickly. Uh,
0: yeah, so you want to fill up those IOQs yeah. pretty much.
1: And well, then so, so that's partly the problem is that if you fill it up too much with, say, all these reads and then you have a write you really need to get done, you don't want it stuck 64 mm. commands behind some other stuff. So you got to balance yeah. it a little bit. But in order to get the most out of the device, uh, then you do need to do that. Um, mm. So then the top bandwidth for this device seems to be about one65 gigabytes per second uh which you can't quite reach even with 256k uh blocks but if you use 64 queues you can hit that uh as small as 8k blocks uh but it seems once you um get past 64k with 64 threads you actually start to run in some limit and actually drop the speed slightly
0: Mm. yeah so it's finding the right balance between threads and the uh the block size and all these things so yeah that's why we do these benchmarks so
1: that was random what's interesting is that uh doing a sequential read so reading in a straight line of 64k blocks uh did only about a gigabyte a second which is okay Uh, i says a special note about this device uh device was only 128 gigabytes unlike all the others which are 256 or 250 ish anyway uh so that's part of the reason why the speeds are slower because there's only half as many flash chips to talk to so, yeah, oh, okay. looking at the uh, 960 Evo, which was uh, bigger, you can see the speed was about the same. It scaled up uh, and topped out actually at less, uh, about 1.1 gigabytes per second, uh, with or without uh, six with 16 or 64 threads. Uh, once you got to about 16 uh, kilobyte blocks, but the sequential mm-hmm. read speed was 1.5 gigabytes per second. Uh, the Toshiba managed uh, to top out about 1.5, and the, but the sequential read was only 900. And he's got more notes on that, specifically about the temperature and so on. Uh, the Intel one, uh, he said, noted that the using 64 threads instead of 16 seemed to make no difference at all. And he found that uh, the read speed at 512 byte blocks was as low as 23 megabytes a second, which is quite low. Uh, at 4K, hmm. it was about 180. Oh, uh, once you scaled up to 128 or 26K blocks, you were almost a gigabyte a second. The sequential read, though, okay. was 64K blocks uh, were 220 megabytes a second, and 128 was 350, both of which uh, he notes are not very good performance at all. Hmm. Although uh, he shows some interesting things as you will use more threads, uh, mostly that the Intel seems to only work if you have a highly concurrent workload.
0: Right. So I guess those are problems that are basically design yeah. problems. They cannot be fixed by a, a like a firmware Probably. update or something.
1: Um, so in that one, it, I think in that case, it mostly comes down to a use case. The Intel's optimized for doing a lot of different things at once, rather than providing the best performance for say a desktop. Uh, mm. It really depends on your workload, yeah, special uh, workloads. whether it does a better job at certain things than others. Uh, the Western digital one, uh, okay, got up to about 1.5 gigs a second, although the sequential reads were, again, quite mediocre uh, in the 300 to 400 megabytes per second range. Uh, Then shows the My Digital SSD. You can see it ramping up from 70 megabytes through 500, 900, 1200, up to 2.2 gigahertz and up to, uh, or sorry, gigabytes per second to 2.4 gigabytes per second, Uh, but then When the throttling kicks in, it dropped down to as low as 1.1. And the Mm -hmm. sequential read speeds were pretty mediocre as well.
0: Okay. So it would be interesting to either replicate or um, basically retry those experiments on other Mm -hmm. uh, BSDs and similar hardware. Yeah, it's to see whether you can confirm or deny or uh, find other uh, results for those benchmarks.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to just see how different some of the devices are, like whether they have 16 Qs or 8, and you know, how big of a difference that makes and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the end, it can come down to what actual flash exists on the device. Uh, and with some of them where they use commodity flash, it could mean that if they were manufactured on a different day, they could have completely different flash and perform completely differently.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's quite a difference. It's a Monday device. Yeah,
1: versus a, a Wednesday device.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and also the, the temperature mm-hmm. is, the, is the problem. But yeah, that, that's a thing for another day.
1: So our next story is about ZREP, or ZREP, I guess, if you want to say it that way which Uh
0: is a ZFS replication and failover script. Okay. Sounds interesting (laughs) because failover, I haven't heard that much about failover. Well, I think in in this one, it's uh,
1: more just swapping mount points than necessarily failover, but uh, I haven't looked into it that deeply. Okay. Uh, But they have uh, quite a bit of information here. It says ZREP is a robust yet easy to use ZFS based replication and failover solution. It can serve as a conduit to create simple backup hub. Um, Okay. In particular, uh, one thing that's interesting about it is while it's a shell script, it's written in KSH or corn shell rather than, uh, you know, born shell or uh, bash yeah. or something. Uh,
0: yeah, similar to the D-Trace mm-hmm. uh, toolkit scripts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but so, okay. uh, I guess those can be rewritten in, in other uh, shells.
1: Yeah, I don't know the value in that. But uh, so that means if you want to use it on FreeBSD, you need to install KSH-93 Uh, although there is a port of zrep so you can just install that although the port is a couple of versions behind Uh, so you might want to poke somebody about getting that updated or it's a great way for you to get involved in FreeBSD and update the port Uh, especially since this one's a shell script it's relatively easy it's just a matter of uh, bumping a url in the make or the version number in the make file and making sure you have the right url to download it from and there's nothing to worry about right it's it's just uh, a shell script Uh, you know Lots mm. of other ports are more complicated, but this one will be super easy. It's a great way to. Cut your
0: <laughs> I guess porters are already on their way of uh, updating that one after they hear that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay. Um, so um, yeah, free, few versions behind. That gets updated over the week, so I guess um, people should just check mm-hmm. it out. There's a couple of um, descriptions on the man page and uh, on the man page uh, on the web page for that. And, yeah, it would be interesting to see how it how it works with the actual replication and failover between different, uh, is it mount points or is it data sets? Uh,
1: data sets. Although a data set oh, is mm-hmm. usually mounted. So. Uh, yeah. So. But, yeah, uh, for their list of uh, why you should use ZREP over some other tool, it says it's safe and has some locking and other sanity checks. It's easy to use. It handles failover of active file systems uh, and it can run very frequently without trouble. Uh, in general, it's... Fairly easy to do, you do zrep init and give it your pool, your destination host, and uh, where you want the dataset to go there. And then you can just run zrep sync all, and it will sync all the things that you've initialized before.
0: Okay, sounds not too complicated.
1: Yeah, uh, you can control how many snapshots to keep on the remote side and so on with a user property. Uh, it looks relatively straightforward. Uh, so, if anybody's actually used this before, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, they note that it works with mBuffer or BBCP uh, as well so that you can buffer it or, or see throughput as it's going and estimations and so on. Uh, hmm?
0: Yeah, send us a review if you checked it out, tried it on your system, see how it goes, write up something and we'll put it on the show. Yeah,
1: we'd just love to hear more about it and see what people think.
0: Our second sponsor this week is IX Systems.
1: If you head over to iXSystems.com slash BSD now, uh, you can download their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source, which will kind of walk you through why you don't want to buy it from, you know, one of the other places where you might have traditionally bought your hardware and why if you want yep. to run, whether it's FreeBSD or FreeNAS or Linux or whatever, Open source thing you want to run on your server, you should buy it from IX because they actually know about open source. But also, yep. they understand the hardware a lot better than the salespeople at a lot of these other places. Uh, you know, you talk to them by email or on the phone, and you explain what you're trying to do and what your problems are, and they will help you what the server yeah. should do. Uh, and they will help you pick the right hardware. Uh, you know mm-hmm. every server from IX is custom built. Right? They don't have a bunch of models already built sitting on a shelf that they're just trying to ship to you. They want to build the server exactly to your needs so that you're not wasting any money on parts and components and features you don't need, but you're getting the best uh, value and the best performance you can for the money you're spending. You know, uh, even just which type of SSD you want for ZFS. It's
0: like, or, what kind of Intel processor, the E3s, the Intel Atom right. is also possible for configuration? Right, or, even just
1: uh, looking at E5s, do you want an E5 1650, which gives you like 3.5 gigahertz, but only like eight or so, or 10 cores? Or do you need an E5 2650, which can give you twice as many cores, but they're only at like 2.2 or 2.5 gigahertz? It's like, well, mm. you know. If I have a single-core workload, the higher gigahertz might be better. But if I have a well-threaded workload, my total gigahertz will be higher with the 2650. Uh, And so, you know, they understand those differences and can help you pick what is right for you. Or, you know, the first time I built a large ZFS storage server with iX, I was like, I don't know if I should lay this out as a bunch of RAID Z2s of, like, six drives, or if I should do a bunch, uh, like, a bigger one of a 12. And it's like, how do I decide... And you know, I got to mm. talk to one of their ZFS experts, and we walked through the decision and decided what to do.
0: Yep. And also, the question is how, ma- how much networking you want to do. You want a dual NIC, two port per nodes, or a quad core or quad NIC, quad core NIC, <laughs> quad NIC. How many drive bays? All these mm-hmm. things are important decisions that you need to make when you are configuring a server for your open source.
1: And the best part is, they burn it in for you so they run their tests for 72 hours uh after they build the machine and shake out any problems that are going to happen before they ship it to you All
0: right mm, in case the discs yes. are falling the, failing in the first yes, two the, the days chance, or so they won't ship yeah, it yeah the to chance of a disc failing
1: in the first two days is the highest in the, the entire lifetime of the disc so having them take care of that means that you get discs that work uh and you don't have to think about it
0: there's nothing worse like getting a server and you put it into production and on the first two and the second day it already has a died hard drive so ix systems will make sure that you won't get one of those
1: plus they have a great warranty for the servers and they'll stand behind that okay so now we have uh an unusually large rapid fire section to get through so there's quite hmm. a bit of uh, news that's we've uh, not kept up with, with uh, TrueOS and yep. OpenBSD and so on. Uh, so we thought we would uh, go through a bunch of those different things with
0: you now. To keep you up to speed with what's been happening in these different mm-hmm. projects.
1: So the first is uh, TrueOS security and WikiLeaks revelations. Uh, recently, WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks released a large a number of documents detailing system exploits that the U.S. intelligence agency... Uh, Amid, or uh, apparently, we're using well, uh, to gain information from or otherwise monitor individuals. Uh, in particular, PCBSD showed up in that in a number of times, um, but it looks like mostly it was gen- general Linux software. In particular, I think one was HALDI, uh which you mm-hmm. know was at the time a dependency to have your mouse and keyboard work properly in, in uh, Xorg. Uh, yeah, Let's, these
0: were software they were using from other mm-hmm. projects, not a true S vulnerability yeah. by itself. It's just,
1: it was a software that was installed by default uh, in PCBSD, so it made it on the list. Uh, in particular, mm. uh, I don't think Haldi is used anymore because they use DevD instead, uh, so it's less mm. uh, of an issue now anyway. But uh, they have uh, some quick notes uh, to keep up with here, saying the TrueS project is committed to finding and patching any security vulnerabilities immediately upon discovery... Due to the rolling release model, TrueOS can update easily, providing security fixes to users very quickly. They say TrueOS project diligently uh, sorry diligently signs all binary packages and installation images publicly distributed by the TrueOS team. In addition, the package utility on TrueOS automatically verifies each package, which ensures that each package's integrity uh, and that it hasn't been tampered short. with. Uh, the TruS project also incorporates a GPG key in all installation images available for download section. Additionally, the uh, checksums of the individual files are also available. This allows both verification that the whole file is received and confidence that the file is secure from third-party tampering. Uh, also, TrueS takes a minimalist stance in regards to system services automatically installed and enabled in the background uh, so that, you know, even if a package is vulnerable, it's probably not running unless you specifically enabled it. Meaning that
0: yeah, and it's not listening on ports and waiting for connections. So right. only if you only the stuff that you explicitly activate will be waiting uh, as a service for right. Connectivity so specifically, from the outside when
1: world. you hear about a problem in such such and such uh, Open Source service, and you're like, I've not heard of that one. I wonder if my OS is running it without asking me. True, S probably isn't. Uh, if you haven't specifically enabled it. Uh, and you usually only specifically enable it if you know what it is, means that if you don't know what it is, it's probably not running and it's less of a concern for you. Also, uh, TrueS uses LibreSSL and uh, as such has managed to avoid a number of vulnerabilities in OpenSSL or quickly gotten the patches when they were something that affected both.
0: Okay, Uh, so that's basically what the Wikileaks documents uncovered so far.
1: Yeah, so they say uh, the TrueOS handbook also has a general uh, security chapter uh, that you can use to try to lock down your system. But uh, yeah, specific things they found so far is one called Bald Eagle, which was an exploit for HAL. Uh, The FreeBSD base does not use HAL. Uh, FreeBSD uses its own device notification system called DevD. However, Linux-based desktops like KDE, GNOME, and MATE, uh, and Cinnamon, and XFCE uh, install and require HAL on FreeBSD uh, to see which... Previously, packages, application use how. You can check out FreshPorts, which has a list of the things that depend on it. Uh, Mm. They also recommend if you're still using PCBSD 10.3, you switch to TrueOS to uh, keep up to date with security stuff. And the second one was something called SparrowHawk, which is a method uh, for individuals to monitor your system after gaining access to it. Uh, TrueOS incorporates security policies designed to prevent unauthorized users accessing your system. As such Barrowhawk doesn't uh, isn't considered to be an exploit per se. Uh, you know they'd have to somehow get into your system first before they could use it. Uh, they also note that the FreeBSD utility watch is no exception to us will continue to provide uh, security options such as built-in firewalls and SSH restrictions to prevent unauthorized access to your system.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good.
1: Our next story they had here is their new jail management utility. Uh, they've switched uh, to the newer version of uh, the iO cage yeah uh, yep. uh, but in particular they have uh, three new utilities one called J bootstrap uh, which fetches the base system packages J init uh, creates it and J destroy to delete uh, jail and they have uh, instructions on how to do that and some screenshots and show how it works they also mention uh, the networking and how you can use uh, ipv4 aliases and so on uh, or how you can actually set up vimage as well to have an entire virtual network stack for your jails. That
0: specific jail. Hmm. Uh, cool. oh, so, yeah, I've so, this is, yeah so this been playing around with IOCage. Yeah, so this is separate like so from
1: IOCage, they say. They say, well, we still recommend IOCage for advanced workloads, uh, more complicated networking setups, plugins, jails, and all that other stuff. If you want just a simple, straightforward jail,
0: their little J tools there uh, might be faster for you. Cool. Okay, so we should check that out. See what it mm-hmm. does or what it can do above the normal jail utilities. Yep.
1: Uh, then we have uh, a video else here. What do we have?
0: Uh, Ken Moore
1: uh, spoke at the Ohio Linux Fest about uh, SysADM, their new uh, API and tool for that. Uh, if you haven't seen this video, you should definitely
0: check that out. Mm, it's on YouTube. Yep. Uh, and, and just noticing there's
1: uh right beside it there's a related video that you might want to check out uh Michael Lucas giving an introduction to ZFS so if you hadn't uh if you're still new to ZFS it's worth checking out uh from that same channel. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of new things for people to check out and yeah, so these are the is that the is that all from the Truist Uh there's section? one more
1: here. Uh uh, community Spotlight, the basics of using ZFS with TrueOS. Uh, so this one is oh, yeah. uh, a thread over on their discourse uh, forum. Uh, user RobGriff444 uh, wrote up uh, a very detailed thread about some of the basics of ZFS. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the TrueOS project just wanted to highlight that and thank him for the contribution. And they've uh, converted some parts of it into a nice blog post here. But oh, it I covers see. a lot of the basics of... Uh, Doing stuff with ZFS and specifically stuff with the TrueOS tools.
0: That they have in their their system. Mm. And Uh, uh, how
1: boot environments work and so on.
0: Oh, wow. That's a lot of text. Yeah. Uh, In particular,
1: like using the Light Preserver tool to automatically create snapshots. uh, How to recover your root system uh, if an upgrade doesn't go well. Things like that. Uh, How to recover individual files using the Insight File Manager. Uh, Lots of stuff. So this is uh, mostly ZFS features, but how to use them uh, the easier way in TrueOS.
0: Yeah, with a nice GUI around it and helpful utilities to help you set Mm -hmm. it up.
1: So uh, switching gears a bit, we have OpenBSD rundown of news. Uh, First Mm -hmm. one is obviously that uh, OpenBSD 6.1 will come out in May. Uh, It's already been scheduled.
0: no, no day before, no day after. May May the first is the yeah, one. It doesn't have a That's poster
1: or a song yet, by the look of it. They're still working on that bit. Uh mm.
0: Oh, there's but, still time.
1: But they've already published the keys for their uh, signify stuff, uh, and they have a growing list of what's new, including support for ARM sixty four using Clang. Uh, the Long Song platform uh, now has the supports the three A CPU. Uh, they retired the Armish, uh, Spark, and Zaris, uh platforms. Uh, and okay. a whole new list of drivers they support, including a bunch of uh, ACPI stuff, uh, a driver for feeding Hyper-V's Entropy Daemon, um, more Hyper-V, Hyper-V, uh, Freescale, Atmel, at LongSwan, Octeon, OMAP, ARM, Allwinner, uh, TPM driver, uh, Wacom USB tablets, which is also commonly used in um, VMs to provide exact mouse positioning. Uh, yeah. a new VMMCI c- command interface for their uh, hypervisor, a new mm-hmm. uh, Zen Blockfront virtual disk driver, and uh, a driver for the Luna 88K's I.O. processor.
0: Oh yeah, they had one of those at the Asia mm-hmm. BSDCon NetBSD table for uh, people to play with or see what it can do. Yeah, so there's a, an impressive list of uh, improved hardware support on the OpenBSD. And that's not all in the new 6.1 release coming up. Uh, there's IEEE 802.11 wireless stack improvements.
1: Yep, the IWN so, and IWM drivers got a new short guard interval for 11n mode and support for MIMO uh, 0 through 15. Uh, and including in, in the Aetheros driver also got host AP mode. A uh, bunch of other updates to that stuff. Uh, lots of network stack improvements, uh, some installer improvements, including uh, the installer now fetches stuff over HTTPS instead of FTP. Uh, lots of other interesting stuff going on there, uh, so worth checking out sure. and keeping an eye on. Ah, uh, looks like they actually added the SHA five twelve truncated to two fifty six uh, functions that I added to FreeBSD. They also added those to libc on uh, OpenBSD.
0: Ah, see, cool. that's uh, in multiple projects now.
1: Good stuff. Yeah, but the list of changes is quite huge, uh, including Open SMTB D6, uh, OpenSSH 7.4, LibreSSL 2.5.1, uh, new versions of Mandoc,
0: uh, mm. lots wow. of other software in the list. ports tree. And-, and they're still writing that release note, so check back for mm-hmm. more. Uh, And, of course, check out the release when it's there, and I guess we'll cover it in the show in in May. But that's not all from OpenBSD. They um, have some more information about the OpenBSD Foundation 2016 fundraising. Uh, So how's that going? Well, so for
1: 2016, uh, they had a fundraising goal of $250,000, and they managed to meet that uh, with the uh, final donation total of $573,000, so more than double their target. Uh, so then mm, not bad. Uh, they, this is for 2017. Now they're looking at uh, trying to do even more.
0: Mm. They
1: say yeah, uh, 2017 good. slate of hackathons uh, is being solidified in light of the financial resources now available. These events will continue to provide a stream of improvements to the OpenBSD BSD project. Uh, they say we'd like to especially thank uh, contributors, both large and small who have made commitments, uh, for continuing donations to the foundation, I know that I have a monthly subscription, uh, so that they have a uh, income they can count on. Knowing that this, even though it's you know it's not a donation like the ones that Microsoft or uh, Yandex or Smartison made, uh, it's money they know they're getting every month.
0: Yeah, and it's important that not only big companies uh, donate money. I mean, it's important, of course, but also donations from it doesn't have to be a big donation but at least a couple of uh people not in companies or not uh, many companies uh normal people should donate to foundations as well yes. because they sometimes have these requirements that uh well the open, open bsd foundation
1: is not from. a charity uh and so they don't have no. quite the same requirements uh partly because it's based in no, canada yeah, as well works, but yeah. uh yeah their goal for 2017 is three hundred thousand, uh and they're ...at about 15,000 right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the year is still yes. long. There's still time to make a donation... ...during the year.
1: Yep. Uh, next up, they have a, a... ...man-in-the-middle attack against WPA1 and 2. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is a OpenBSD errata for March 1st... Uh, ...by Stefan Sperling... ...saying, a man-in-the-middle vulnerability... ...has been found in OpenBSD's wireless stack... A malicious access point could trick OpenBSD clients uh, using WPA1 or WPA2 into connecting to this malicious access point instead of the desired access point. When this attack oh. is used successfully, the OpenBSD client will send and accept unencrypted frames. Uh, this problem only affects OpenBSD clients, and OpenBSD access points are unaffected. Uh, so, they have a thanks here to uh, Matei uh, Vanhoef from... Uh, uh, university I'm not going to try to pronounce in Belgium (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh, for finding and reporting this issue and uh, providing a demo exploit and an uh, initial patch and working through several iterations of that patch together with Stefan to get it committed Uh, and they have patches against OpenBSD 5.9 and 6.0 so that you can patch your system so that uh, a rogue AP cannot trick you into not encrypting your wireless
0: Mm. yep Which is important. And then we have here uh,
1: the slides from Mike Larkin's update on VMM and VMD, which is the hypervisor for OpenBSD. Uh, These -hmm. are the slides from the BeehiveCon update. Um, But in addition to this, uh, they've also announced that they've gotten uh, Ubuntu and some other Linuxes and uh, Plan 9 booting in uh, OpenBSD.
0: in the meantime, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, that's good. So they're making progress there. Yeah, If
1: you follow Ken on Twitter, he's been uh, posting as he gets different things working.
0: And now we're covering your weekly BSD bits with a couple of news from uh, the Harden BSD project. So in this one, they are introducing CFI. So what is CFI? It stands for Control Flow Integrity and is an exploit mitigation technique that helps prevent attackers from modifying the behavior of a program and jumping to undefined or arbitrary memory locations. And apparently, Microsoft has implemented a variety or a variant of that called a CFG, Control Flow Guard. And the PAX team has spent the last few years perfecting their reuse attack protector, RIP, CFI. CFG and RAP, and all attempt to accomplish the same goal with RAP being the most complete and effective implementation so um, there's a CFI implementation in Clang apparently and is that one is stronger than Microsoft CFG and the PAX team's RAP is stronger than both CFI and CFG there is a lot of uh, abbreviations here so you might, might want to look at the article they wrote and to determine which is which. Yeah,
1: uh, um, and it seems it requires a GPLv3 toolchain and is patent pending. So CFI seems to be the best uh, middle ground for now.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's uh, coming to or is already implemented in hardened BSD at least partially. And as of this writing, the following applications have CFI uh, I calls disabled: so MD5, less, mail, top, tsort, vi, Beehive Load. Uh, PwD, MakeDB, SendMail, and Services. Uh, So the MD5 binary, that also covers all the
1: other hashes. It's one binary that's just hard linked to the different names, and then based on that does the different hash. So that includes, Mm -hmm. you know, SHA-1, SHA-256, SHA-512, and even the scheme and all the other hashes that are supported. It's all just uh, one binary.
0: Mm -hmm. And since that's part of Clang, I guess other projects can make use of that Mm -hmm. as well that are using Clang. So, I guess uh, HardenBSD is uh, using that as a uh, kind of a first project doing that. And I guess they will add more utilities and applications over the next weeks and months. Mm -hmm. So, if you are interested in that, check that out from the HardenBSD project. Uh,
1: So, next story we have is the latest version of IOGage, which is based on Python 3, is uh, now available. Uh, So... Uh, well, well, it says here in the um, notes on GitHub that uh, it's not yet available in ports. It actually is now. Uh, that's the news we're bringing you. Uh, but FreshPorts is mm-hmm. currently down, so it's hard to show the website for. Uh, but <laughs> Yeah, so there's a now a uh, Py3 IO cage, uh, which allows you to now have py- uh, IO cages. as your choice of uh, either Python 2.7 or 3.6. Uh, this mm-hmm. way you can have
0: either. Ah, okay. So that's a... Is that a bug fix release or is it a... Uh, well, it's a uh, different version
1: of the scripting language Python that IOcage is based on.
0: Ah, so okay. So there's no implementation-specific new things, but they're using the newer Python version.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, oh, it says uh, the default version of Python on FreeBSD is 3.5, and that's part of the reason why they didn't have a 3.6 available yet. Uh, but it's mostly... Allowing so you can only, I think you, I thought for a while you could only have one of the Pythons installed, and so this way you can use IOCage either way.
0: Um, mm, yeah, some of the things might not work with the newer Python 3. Yeah, I but, saw a couple of other ports that have problems. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but IOCage yeah, uh, having the ability to work with either uh, seems to solve a lot of problems for people.
0: Mm, so you can switch back and forth mm-hmm. and see what, what works best for you. Yep. Okay. And oh, yeah, there's a uh, another story from Dragonfly BSD. They did a network performance comparison. And with, uh, uh, so they did Dragonfly BSD versus other OSs. Uh, so they tested it against the FreeBSD. They tested a couple of uh, Linux versions from the Linux kernel and did some basic uh, network comparisons.
1: Yeah, specifically looking at uh, HTTP short lived connections. Uh, and mm-hmm. seeing how many could be handled. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, the variance uh, was very low on FreeBSD, uh,
0: whereas yeah, there's only one, the the generic no debug kernel mm-hmm. they used with a specific uh, release from head. And so, what's the performance? Uh, so they describe basically what they what the setup looks like and what kind of. Um, settings they made to sysctl and loader.conf and also what kind of uh, specific tuning they did in the other comparison OSs. So in Linux they disabled the firewall and SE Linux and all these things that might uh, impact the performance measurements uh, negatively. And they have some uh, charts from the results that they uh, received and so, yeah, that looks kind of interesting. Yeah, so with, this was uh,
1: presented uh, at BSDCon as well, and there were some interesting uh, questions raised during the talk and so on. So hopefully the video of that will be available uh, shortly as well.
0: Mm, so people can watch that and yep. uh, see what kind of questions it, uh, that one got. Okay.
1: Um, yeah. I already covered that one. Skip it. Uh, so the last thing we have is Noxbug.com. Uh, which is the uh, Knoxville, Tennessee BSD user group? Uh, they've been having their meetings. Actually, they just had their last one I think last night. Uh, but uh, they have a recap of the different things that they've covered so far this year to give uh, you an idea, and in hopes of attracting more people uh, to come to the meetings. Uh, so in January they had the pizza pie meeting, where they had uh, pizza and a Raspberry Pi install fest. Uh, and They said huh. it was a really fun meeting, uh, it was a relaxed, low-key event, uh, having pizza, BSD installation, and socializing. Uh, they also got a demo from Kenmore of the TrueOS Pico, which is a version, uh, a thing client that goes on Raspberry Pi type devices and then does the compute part on your regular server or a free or something buried in your closet or whatever. <coughs> in February, they had oh. a, a meeting about uh, OpenRC on TrueOS and some of the stuff that's going on there. Uh and uh they were talking about uh, a bunch of other things, including PackBSD, uh recently. Mm-hmm. Uh so in, in particular they're trying to invite people from other projects to come to their bug as well. It's mostly FreeBSD people so far. But they're trying to get some PackBSD people, which is uh a Linux variant, uh or I forget if it's FreeBSD using the Linux package manager or a FreeBSD kernel of the Linux user land in the back of the uh Anyway, uh-huh. Dragonfly, OpenNet, uh, you went to BSD and all the others to try to come together uh, and make their meetings larger.
0: Yeah. If you're in the area, check out their meetings and yeah, do some, uh, you know, idea sharing and talk to people and have a good time with yep. BSD folks.
1: So uh, this week's episode was brought to you by Tarstamp. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsd now and uh, send Colin your $5 and start backing up your files properly.
0: (laughs) Mm, Into the cloud, but securely Mm -hmm. and encrypted, of course.
1: Online backups for the truly paranoid. Uh, Making sure that the data doesn't leave your computer until it's encrypted. And the only copy of the encryption key is yours. So that by destroying that key, you can ensure that no one can ever read that data.
0: Yep. And even Colin cannot access your data, even if you wanted to. Yep.
1: Uh, And the other nice thing is that the source code for the client is open. So you can read and audit that source code and compile it yourself to know that what you're getting is what it actually says on the tin.
0: Mm -hmm. And while you're reading the code, you can already uh, check out whether you find some bugs. Because Colin also has a Tarsnap bug bounty program Mm -hmm. that covers uh, things like typos or critical bugs you might find. But a lot of people have already gone over the code, and apparently there's not much to find there.
1: Yep, uh, but the bug bounties are also doubled uh, during uh, heading up to releases. So when he do? does a, a beta ahead of a release, uh, you the, all the bug bounties listed on the website are doubled. He also has this... Um, Hall of Fame, where you can see that uh, some people have found lots of bugs. People (laughs) found something. Uh, Ralph Godry managed to find a total of 150 different bugs that added up to $1,039. I'm guessing a bunch of those were typos and stuff.
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess.
1: Whereas uh, Taylor Campbell found eight and added up to uh, $609. And Tim Bishop found three that added up to $320 and so on. Uh, But, you know, you could find one and get your name on the list. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, I saw someone actually. But it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it was uh, funny when he was talking about this uh, particular um, bug bounty program at program. BSDCAN. Somebody pointed out a typo on his slides and he paid them a dollar during the talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that can happen. <laughs> yeah. So he's very open about that and people who are versed in security and finding bugs that. Uh, could make some money out of that, but I guess Colin is very, very uh, cautious about what kind of code he writes and how secure it is.
1: Yep. Uh, so, if you look down past the um, the Hall of Fame, you can actually see where the major bugs are, who found it, how it was paid out, and some some of them even have blog posts about it, explaining how it happened and providing mm-hmm. an analysis. Uh, but all the uh, minor bugs have Uh, a one sentence description letting you know what has happened, how much it was paid for it, and uh, what version it was fixed in. And then down at the bottom, he has the harmless bugs. And yes, we can see that uh, Ralph Cordray's 56 of his uh, bugs were minor and were paid $10 for. Uh, Whereas the top half of that uh, $1,000 Ralph got was uh, worth more. And then uh, you can see that the cosmetic errors, uh, 85 of them, We're like $1 and $2 fixes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's
0: all broken down. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And if you have questions about Tarsnap, there's a lot of stuff in the support section on the website. So there's a Tarsnap documentation, of course. There's also a EFnet IRC channel, Tarsnap, and a mailing list. And you can also contact the author uh, itself. So there's a lot of ways to learn about Tarsnap. And the best way, of course, is to just use it and try it out.
1: Okay, so the last thing we have is feedback and questions. Sadly, we don't have very many this week because uh, you, the audience, has not written in enough emails. So please write us more emails. That's feedback at FreeBSD, mm. er, sorry, feedback at bsdnow.tv.
0: Yep, we'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. So the question that we got is basically asking us, so let's start at the beginning. Um, we are a Linux shop that recently merged or acquired a shop that's mostly Windows total of maybe 10 servers, some with services on bare metal, some running Proxmox, providing mostly web hosting services. All services include email, web hosting, DNS, DHCP, Radius, NTP, TFTP, config management, monitoring, and all the usual other stuff. So that's not very unusual. So anyway, the uh, question asker, basically, uh, has listened to enough BSD now, which is good. Thank you for that. That he's starting to think about a move to BSD only shop would be a good option for him. Um, However, there's a push by the consultant that's supporting that company that supported the acquired shop um, that's supporting Windows on VMware due to its prevalence in the industry everywhere. Um, The question is now whether the beehive and jails could do work uh, or work equivalently for the VMware that they're already using um they're basically running some services on bare metal for what they believe is a performance benefit um we can continue that way or whether beehive or jails enhance our security profile we should move that way what's our comment about that
1: uh, so for performance difference between vm and bare metal it mostly comes down to what type of performance you need cpu performance in beehive and most other vms is pretty much 99% of the bare metal uh unless you have contention with those machines however right. uh disk io is usually the one that gets slower because you're emulating a virtual disk that you have a file system on and then depending on some stuff that means that on the hypervisor you're then writing that virtual the the stuff that's written to that virtual disk is then going into a file that's going on top of another file system that eventually talks to some disks and so on uh, if yeah, you're using there's maybe, a whole
0: lot of stacking yeah. And yeah.
1: if you're using going on say ZFS and a ZVOL maybe it's slightly better but it's still not uh, perfect um, although then you have the option of say doing iSCSI or something and passing the uh, a virtual device or a whole device through into the VM um, mm-hmm. yeah so Beehive can probably handle most of the stuff uh, and maybe increases your security footprint yeah um, you know, you definitely do some of the stuff like DNS, DHCP, NTP, TFTP, and depending on the, which type of config manager it is that uh, from BSD and maybe need fewer Windows machines or do more of it on one machine with VMs or uh, jails instead of having as many separate machines.
0: Yeah, consolidate a little bit more.
1: Yeah, uh, the basically where Beehive falls down is if you need something like live migration or something, then you're kind of looking at VMware. Although your other option is Xen. So FreeBSD can host Xen VMs uh, and it has live migration that works and everything. And it's a bit more of a, you know, uh, supported by the market. And it's, it's what every people in the industry know what Xen is and, and how it works. Uh, yeah,
0: there are tools yeah. and yeah. migration scripts out there to yeah, you know move into Xen world.
1: Lots of tooling and documentation and so on. So... It might be uh, a better middle ground to look at Xen on FreeBSD. It has a few more of the vmware features, uh, but without the VMware price tag.
0: Um, Mm. And combine that with CFS and mm -hmm. the features that offers is a very good thing to to try out because it can uh, give you a lot of new storage options or a whole new view about how you manage your storage, whether it's your VM storage or your regular storage that you're uh, managing on those machines. So that might be a thing you might want to check out.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Beehive should work. But if you need live migrations and things of that nature, uh, Zen might be a better option. But both of those you can run on FreeBSD and uh, you can get a bunch of that stuff away from Windows or isolate the Windows into VMs. Uh, again, the main advantage to bare metal is if disk I/O is the main uh, performance that you're worried about. If it's just CPU, the VMs will not really hurt you at all.
0: Yeah. And for the servers, you can basically try to run them in parallel and see how it goes uh, without you know interfering with each other, of course. Uh, the nice thing about that is that you can sometimes just switch over to the BSD and switch out or switch off the Windows equivalent and no one will notice and it runs like it's been running before, but on the BSD so that's sometimes very very interesting to see that people don't notice what's running in the background on their services. They just want to use the the service that's actually running on the box and don't care what kind of operating system is is working on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and security-wise, I guess there is stuff happening in the security world all the time, and but Windows provides a much bigger attack surface for exploits and all these uh, bad things out that are out there and BSD still have a a very low attack um amount Surface. so yep. yeah. and you might want to switch to that just in, in case you are um considering you know reducing that a little bit yep. and yeah
1: so thank you are, uh, Noel, yeah. for the uh question uh we appreciate having feedback uh, so again a reminder uh We would normally be answering more questions right now, but you, the audience, did not send us enough questions, so please send us more questions, as well as comments, show ideas, topics, stories you want to cover, people you want us to interview, uh, people that want to volunteer to be interviewed, etc., etc., please write to feedback at bsdnow.tv and let us know, and hopefully we'll have more feedback for you uh, in April.